Dos Uno Live or Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World where I am joined by Rob Lubo from Bug Copy. Rob, hello there. Hey Kane. Good to be here. How are you doing? Yeah, thank Excellent. you. Nice to be here. You're doing well. In LA, yes? Yes, we're all located in LA for the uh, for the most part and uh, nice. it's beautiful as ever. Nice hotter, much, much hotter weather than it is here, I would uh, I would imagine. Uh probably, yeah, it's been pretty hot this week. Nice, nice. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going to get into an excellent conversation. We've got all sorts to talk about today. I'm really keen to learn more about bot copy. Uh, definitely keen to, to understand a bit more about your philosophy and all that kind of stuff. And uh, also some pretty deep topics, I would say, around uh, things like cognitive bias and really this technology that we all uh, love so dearly. Uh, where is it going and what are some of the potential negative impacts that this stuff might have on uh, on the economy, society, and all that kind of stuff. So definitely keen to uh, to get into that conversation. Uh, but before we do that, a quick shout out to uh, Core AI for presenting VUX World at Voice 22, which is the conference in Arlington, big voice AI conference in Arlington, Virginia, in October. And on October the 11th, VUX World has its own stage, its own room, and essentially we're putting on a sub event at the main event. The whole day is going to be spent discussing contact center automation and walking you through the end-to-end journey of how to automate your contact center using conversational AI technologies. It's presented by Core AI. We've got a whole bunch of epic speakers uh, showing up and sharing case studies with enterprise clients, showing you how they've done what they've done, what results they've been getting, and how you can do the same. So do not miss that. All of the links to find out more are going to be in the show notes. And coming up over the next few weeks, there's going to be a 20% discount on tickets for VUX World listeners and fans and friends of the show so please do check that out it's our first live event so i'm super 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 looking forward to that um so do check that out i'll put the links in the show notes and uh i don't know but it's a bit of a flight for you like rob i don't know if you're planning on attending the uh the voice conference in uh in arlington uh i would love to it's a bit of a flight for you too maybe i'll have to make the trek because <laughs> you're going to be there in person right so you're you're going to be flying over the atlantic to do this um Yes. It sounds like a great event. I, right. I love that area. I'd love to visit, you know, Washington, D.C. and walk around, look at the monuments, too. So, yeah. Nearby. Yeah, it's supposed, it, Washington is one of them places where it's like a, a, a classic American city, I would say. It's like one if you're going to go to America and do like five cities, Washington would probably be one of the ones that you just have to do just because of the history and, and what it is, you know? Absolutely. So, you're, Or would you're, you disagree with that? No, I would definitely agree with that. And if you have to fly from the UK to the US, you could do worse than Washington DC because you're going to see a lot of a lot of history, a lot of monuments, a lot of you know bucket list items. Have you been to the states? Uh, been to that area before? Not to that area. I've been to the states once, which is okay. for another voice conference, which was in uh, Chattanooga of all places. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, no, it's nice. I love it many times. Uh, they have a hotel there that's like a train, um, which I've been, I've stayed in yeah. like 20 times. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, DC is great. Want to see you, want to shake your hand. Uh, sounds like an amazing event. You know, I've been following Core AI, great company. So um, plenty of reasons to go. Hope I can yeah. make it. Nice one. Nice one. And uh, another great company, Bot Copy, doing some uh, very interesting stuff. 
where did where did it come from? Well, first of all, actually, let's let's explain uh, what bot copy is and what bot copy does. Firstly, that might be that might be helpful. Mm-hmm. We're a software company based in LA. Um, we're a SaaS model, and we we're we like to think we're the number one web messenger for Google Cloud Dialogflow. So it's pretty niche. Um, our, our target is, I mean, our, our market is enterprise, public sector, um, because Dialogflow mm-hmm. isn't really an entry-level product. And uh, so that's what we do. We're a SaaS that really focuses on that one piece, but we've been growing recently to encompass other pieces. But modularized approach is how I would, is sort of like how I would categorize us as opposed to like a core AI, which is like a, a one-stop. Uh, we really believe in mm-hmm letting our well we're serving people who want to own their own cloud and you know in a big cloud back end and then kind of put modular components on the front that's the market we serve and for various reasons and we can get into that um mm. interesting so how would how would you how would you define a web messenger well so dialogue flow i'm using it in terms of like Something that lives on your web, it could live on any channel, but it's a chat bot primarily, not a voice bot. And uh, what we do is uh, make it easy to put a web messenger, a messenger on a website. So as opposed to like a chat messenger that could be on an, on an app or, you know, messaging app, it's specifically web. So um, adding a dialogue flow agent to your website in a rich custom interface was a bit of a challenge a few years ago. And there was some demand primarily from ourselves, we needed to do that quickly for some clients and there were no SaaS products available to help us do that. So that's sort of why we created it. Um, so we, right. we always kind of and, say and, the word web when we talk about bot copy. It's web chat versus just chat. Right. I'm with you. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. And and so for those who've used Dialogflow, uh, they'll be familiar with certainly Dialogflow ES very code heavy and Dialogflow CX, although it's a little bit more, there's a bit more of a visual component to it. There's still, you know, a bit of pushing and pulling required to, to deploy chatbots and things like that. Is, is the idea of bot copy to um, minimize that kind of coding and stuff like that? So it's a little bit more of a drag and drop kind of front end to Dialogflow. Is, is that a good way of describing it or not? Absolutely. I mean, when you're building the back end in Dialogflow, that's a whole job in itself. And then at some point, you're going to want to take that agent, that code base, and express it as a front-end UI, as a chatbot on a website. And that could either take a year of coding and constantly maintaining and building in all sorts of custom features on the front-end that can do certain things. Um, it's a huge burden. It's the front-end piece of the puzzle. And what people were doing, they were you know trying to build custom using React or something like that. And often their pro- their solution was janky and, they, and it took a long time, cost a lot of money. So when we first looked into building one custom for our clients, we were looking at 30, 40,000 just to get that front end piece done with Dialogflow. Um, and that mm-hmm. seemed absurd to us and it seemed absurd to our clients, frankly, when we were an agency. Um, and we felt, hey, this needs to be done easier, quicker, and it can be. So that's that's the point. But at the same time, it needs to be HIPAA compliant. It needs to be GDPR compliant, ADA compliant, um, extremely secure. So it's it's not a lightweight piece of software. It's actually where all the business kind of, it's a portal where all the business runs through. It has to be, you know, very high quality. So 
but still being easy to mm. use. Yeah. And and why the choice to, to kind of go with Dialogflow? Was it because that was what you were working with at the time, or is it because you were seeing that the adoption of Dialogflow was either more prevalent or growing? Like, I wonder if you can explain or talk us through what the decision to, to go kind of so all in with Dialogflow. Sure. And it, it wasn't, it, it really was, it came out of necessity. It wasn't like we just said, we're starting with the premise of dialogue flow and proceeding from there. Um, we began as an agency about eight years ago, um, and we started our software about five years ago. So in that three-year period, um, we were trying to make good bots available to enterprise companies. And to do that, we had to look around to solve, find products that solved our problem. So we started on on tools like Chat Fuel. Some of you might remember like Chat Fuel and um, uh, for Facebook Messenger, things like that. And as we got into bigger accounts, mm. uh, they wanted the bot to do more things. They said, "Can it do X? Can it do Y?" So we'd have to look around furiously and see, well, what? How do we get it to do these things? And the path led to Dialogflow. Um, we did have a meeting with a. Uh, someone who knew the whole landscape and they said, okay, here are your options. Uh, Amazon Lex, uh, there's Lewis, uh, Facebook had something at the time. Um, and then there's dialogue flow here, are the pros and cons. And we look, we, we looked at each one with a fine tooth comb and we, we came up with dialogue flows being the best solution for what our clients needed. Um, it was, it was the fastest, mm. uh, throughput, and the intents and entities, the, the kind of user interface was a lot easier at the time, more powerful than the other ones. Um, so we chose Dialogflow. It wasn't through any particular loyalty to Google. It was just a, a kind of a cold, hard realization that this was the best tool. Now, for us, it was. Mm. For someone else, it might, it might certainly be another tool, but it all depends on what you're trying to get done. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I don't know if you saw the post from Qbox fairly recently, which actually reflects some research that was done. I forget who actually did the research prior to that, but it was uh -huh. looking at the most commonly used chatbot platforms in enterprise. Uh -huh. And the the historic version I've seen of this is that IBM was the market leader, uh -huh. followed by uh, Google, followed by Microsoft, and that was pretty much it. It was like a big other category. In this one, and this is not necessarily reflective of the entire market. This is just Qbox customers that use uh, Qbox to to manage their NLU. Which right. platforms are they using? And still had IBM marginally as the most commonly used platform. Right. Followed by Google Dialogflow, obviously. But Google Dialogflow, right. from from memory, was taken up more than it was prior. Again, this is two different studies, so we might be comparing apples to oranges here. Right. Right. Um, but then there was there was new entrants in there like Cognigy and Raza were both included as well, which is interesting. Sure, sure. But it, although you've chose it for for a reason, you know that's not necessarily about market growth and future potential by the sounds of things. It was more around dialogue flow being very practical for what you needed it to do at the time. It does actually transpire that dialogue flow is becoming a kind of like default or go to uh, framework uh -huh. and platform for not just chat but for all kinds of stuff. So you kind of yeah, it's a, it's not a it's not a it's not an unwise choice, is it? No, and we did look at Watson and we did look at Rasa and we like Rasa and we we these are all great products and they all could be appropriate depending on what you want. And um, it was just again like like you said, necessity and just the logical choice for what we wanted to do. Um, there were a lot of requests to keep the conversations more fluid, 
to keep context, to be able to take a nonlinear path. Um, and as our tech team started to build within Dialogflow, um, we were able to kind of internalize how it worked quicker than some of the other ones. At the time, again, you know, things might have changed since then, but at the time, that was the one. So once we started with that and we had momentum with that, you know, it's hard to, to change. Um, so we did Dialogflow <laughs> for a few years. We became experts at it. And we did build some pretty, pretty cool bots, um, but we do plan on creating integrations with some of the other major cloud um, platforms later this year. So probably we're mm -hmm. looking at Azure and we're looking at Lex, Lex 2. Um, we want to make sure that people who are comfortable in these cloud environments and are loyal to those brands have a way to put really intelligent agents onto their website um, in the way that Google Dialogflow users can. Because um, that's what we believe. We, we really actually believe that it makes the world better when you have really smart bots on websites. So um, that's yeah. what we're trying to do. Definitely. We don't want people to feel locked into any specific well, vendor, you know, which is a big part of yeah. our story. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, yeah, I think that, yeah, done right, they can be incredibly helpful that's 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 why we're all kind of getting out of bed in the morning i suppose isn't it uh, but, yeah. um, but it's it's yeah <laughs> i wonder whether whether you can kind of walk you mentioned modules and a modular approach earlier on i right. wonder whether you could kind of walk us through what these component parts of bot copy are mm -hmm. okay well uh the front end ui so you go to a website you see the chat window pop up that chat window should look you know appropriate within that setting of your brand so the colors the styles etc so all that's taken care of with bot copy there's no coding of the the front end you can simply select from like a WYSIWYG editor exactly how you want that little widget to look so right then and there um right. you didn't have that for something like dialogue flow you had to build it from scratch um when we launched um so that's just the first thing that most people can get their head around. The second thing is um, yeah. the, the chat window can actually read the room. So it can, it can see ref parameters in the URL. So it can kind of know who's, come, who's looking at this web page. You know, if that ref parameter in the URL is attached to a specific user, um, the bot passes that through Dialogflow and can see in your database who that user is and welcome them by name and, and with relevant content and all that. So there's a lot of front end features that can read everything going on in the website, what your language settings are. Um, and again, I don't want this to be like a, a too much, you know, a product bullet list here, but that's the layer we're talking about. Um, mainly the front end, mainly the front end. But then there's also, we have a live chat suite um, as well. So, you know, you're, you're taking Dialog flow as your backend cloud. Um, you might be using things like Google SQL or Looker or some other products that can really kind of extend your operations on the backend. Um, and then you're bringing in another piece, which is the bot copy, which is that whole front end part. So that's the module we're talking about. Um, and I think that's um, a new trend that some companies feel gives them more flexibility to scale and to mix and match as as needed mm. Mm. yeah I've, i have come across that very specific need uh a number of years ago not uh -huh. with a client but but someone actually reached out to me and said 
we really we really need to do this and i i didn't read this was probably about two years ago mm-hmm. i don't know whether that was something that you were doing two years ago or not oh, but yeah. if it, if it was not. then uh they they probably might Sorry, have, they probably did a search for uh dialogue flow web chat and we came up number one organic because this is something that we really focused on laser focused on this one problem yeah and so we kind of own this this little niche um, and thankfully, you know, in the past year, more people are typing that in because that's a problem more people need to solve, which is sort of what we anticipated mm. would happen. And we're glad it is um, because we're here to solve it. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And, and that concept of taking parameters from the web page as well and passing that through to the bot is something that I think that few teams are doing at the moment. But what mm-hmm. it ends up doing is I mentioned this before, which is that most most chatbots start at the same place, which mm-hmm. is, hi, how can I help you? Right. And then they need the, they require the user to then express what it is that they need. But there's already a load of information that you have. You've got the web page that the user is on. You've right. got previous pages that the user has been on. Right. You've already mentioned there, are they logged in or are they not logged in? If they are right. logged in, you know previous purchase history. You know when they bought something. Was it two days ago and they're back on the website now? Or they're on a cancellations page? So what do you think they need now? So where the industry is, I find, from uh-huh. observation, is just we're all at this point where it's, hi, how can I help you? Whereas really what we should be trying to get to is how can we preempt what the customer needs or at least make an assumption based right. on information that we know or can get to, which it sounds like that's kind of, where you're where you're allowing people to get to is it for sure because it's more efficient and also it's good manners i mean we can see what they're clicking on we can see what they're looking at it oh it looks like you're interested you know if you go visit your hardware store like in in the u.s it's like lowe's or home depot and you're looking very intently at ceiling fans you know the the salesperson might come up and say oh you want a ceiling fan they're not going to say oh have you seen our lamps you know, it's just out of nowhere. Or how can I help you today? Um, also, they're going to size you up and see like what, you know, how they should approach you. So this is just basic manners and it's it's doable. And there's really no excuse for not trying it and seeing if it works because it's so doable. So sometimes it feels like companies just don't do that uh, just from inertia. But we get excited about thinking about mm. all the things you rattled off, like where they're coming from, if they're logged in or not what they bought in the past and then weaving that into the intent that first pops up. We feel our our hypothesis is that that's going to be really powerful. Um, Now, in terms of showing that it has been actually powerful and actually works, we're starting to we're starting to collect those use cases. Finally, after years of it being hypothetical, Mm -hmm. we're now seeing actual results and benefits from doing that. Um, I know you wrote something really cool. Mm -hmm. I think it was this, this week about saying that you know the chatbot is going to do this or is going to do that but when 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 are you going to mm-hmm. publish something saying it did do this or it did do that and i thought that was a great point um and so i, I think after this <laughs> after this i might publish something <laughs> about some really cool results that have come in i mean we've seen escalations plummet with just having three intents we've and like big companies that have millions wow. of users a day come in and if you get, you know, 14 or 20 or 50 percent escalations plummet, that's that, that could be millions of dollars a year. And and we're seeing it finally. So it it, it mm. logically makes sense, but you never know until it actually happens. Um, and so 
yeah it's an exciting time i think this is a pivotal year yeah yeah absolutely how much of how much of um how much of these capabilities do you need to kind of actively sell so to speak not sell as in you're selling the product but selling the, the strategy and the approach mm-hmm. you know so because i think that a lot of the a lot i mean you could sit around and wait for the market to get there wait for teams to realize that actually what we're doing here is pretty dumb and there's a lot of data that we could ag- have access to and mm-hmm. we could be really more effective right. but you might be waiting a long time or you can go out there and try and educate and try and raise awareness about how better things can be. I'm just wondering whether either in uh, the clients that you have, your go-to-market that you have, how much are you finding that you need to educate the market versus the market coming to you saying, we already have this need kind of thing? Does that make sense? Well, we're, you know, we're a pretty small company, so we don't have an, an enormous reach in terms of content visibility. So we, we try to educate people as much as we can, but in the end of the day, we need people to find us. Um, this is the nature of our our niche. Um, in the early days, we would kind of go um, pound the pavement and approach decision makers. And we'd often hear, sounds like you guys have a solution in search of a problem. We don't need this. And we heard that enough times to realize that, like, if they don't discover this on their own, uh, if they're not like pushed towards us because they're experiencing some pain point or some urgency, uh, it's hard to kind of come in cold and explain to people why this is good. Um, mm-hmm. It can be done, but it just doesn't. It seems like most of our growth is just the light bulb going on. Some some IT person was was just you know their their C level you know leadership said you know I've been reading about AI and Forrester and, and we better get on we better do that. You know, I want to see some results. Go figure out how to do it in a smart way. And then this person's kind of looking around, figuring out, oh, no, what do we do? And some of those people wind up at the doorstep of Dialogflow. They're like, okay, we found a cool thing. It's Dialogflow. They sell that to leadership. And then as they start getting deeper into it, they're like, oh, no, how are we going to get this on our website? There's no real good way to do that. And then they start Googling that. And then they find us. And those people sign up. They swipe. They're not even afraid to, you know, mostly not afraid to swipe. These are often uh, decision make, you know, IT people from enterprise who are looking to get this done quickly. Um, and at that point, it's it's we're very happy to receive them, and they already know the drill. Um, what they might not know mm, at that point is like how big this actually could be, because they might not know that hey, you can create a live chat where if the bot doesn't understand the query. It goes to live chat, but then that query gets fed back into the knowledge base so that you never have to escalate that kind of query again. And that's how you can slowly close that gap and have fewer and fewer escalations. A lot of people don't really understand that concept um, until you present it to them. They just know that they want to mm-hmm. they want to automate the top three requests. That's what they real that's what they know, but they don't know just how good it yeah. can be. So Yeah. That's very interesting. I suppose people don't know what they don't know when they first start out, do they? It's a lot of it's a lot like I think what people have started to get wise to now, which is good, is that you can't just fire and forget this stuff. 
you know, you, you when you deploy it, it's not like that's the finished article, like a website. You just click go and it's live and that's it. Your job's done. You know, it's like as soon as you go live with a chatbot, you have to analyze it. You have to improve it over time because if not, you might have, you might have even got the whole thing wrong in the first place. You're building it often on assumptions if you don't do any kind of testing or you're not basing it based on actual data and stuff like that. So I suppose sometimes people don't know what they don't know. But the good thing, I suppose, from what I'm hearing is that you found a niche that is a real need that people will get to definitely if they're building chatbots and if they're even halfway on their journey towards maturity and so it's a very uh it's a very interesting niche to take up and i think that's uh yeah a very well needed situation Mm -hmm. um your 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 video froze there for a second so i might have missed i might have missed a piece of that because your video froze for a second but um apologies it is um yeah what was no, the I was last just saying thing? I was just saying that I was just saying basic, I was just saying essentially that um I think there's a bit of a delay on the line here um so apologies if I'm if I'm cutting you off I don't mean to I was just saying that um the you found a, a niche a very specific niche that is yet unserved that people will get to when they've when they are on their journey towards maturity essentially is what I was trying to say some people will take that path, sure. Other paths do lead to Rasa. Other paths do lead to Core AI. That's totally legitimate. It just depends on, you know, your specific team, your specific vision for what you want, um, and some paths lead to dialogue flow, and rightly so. Um, and so that's the market we serve. It, it's for each company, each team to discover which product is going to meet their needs the best. So um we we partake, we like nice. to think that we serve the teams that are looking for really strong nlu uh, a lot of and have a vision for kind of like a robust back end where like you were describing the bot can really understand the context um and, and then as well as having that separate layer um and, and to be able to use a cloud you know rather than a one-stop shop so like at the very beginning we were kind of looking at drift and intercom and thinking well they really nailed the front end that's what we want we want a really solid looking little chatbot that looks kind of like that but we don't want to use the back end of drift and intercom we want to use mm-hmm. dialogue flow as the back end so that that was us so if other people feel that way mm-hmm. then they'll find us yeah but then there's a whole other discussion of a lot of companies don't even realize they want a chatbot on their website. Maybe they're thinking they want a WhatsApp presence or they want a voice presence or, you know, call center presence. Um, so those people may not wind up, you know, finding our solution and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Horses for courses, so to speak. Um, so one of the things that, that's interesting and you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier on, which is that all of these companies are creating conversational assistance. You've got Amazon Alexa, Google Assistant, Apple for a long time have been, you know, leading the charge as far as mass adoption of conversational user interfaces. Right. You've got lots of businesses that are now all creating their own assistants, whether that's a, a chatbot, whether that's a, you mentioned WhatsApp, you know, whether that's in the call center. And, you know, the thing that often gets said is that AI will replace jobs. 
and that you know artificial intelligence is very good at doing that repetitive mundane stuff computers don't sleep they don't get tired they don't run out of steam they don't have bad days where they're in a bit of a mood and they're a bit slow to respond or they're not very kind of helpful and so there's all kinds of things that that computers do differently to humans some mm-hmm. would say better some would say uh, worse depending on how you look at it and right. then the thing that's always said is that ai is going to replace jobs mm-hmm. and there, there there isn't a terrible amount of evidence yet unless you can prove me wrong i haven't seen a terrible amount mm-hmm. of evidence of it doing this yet i was in a discussion with jim raw the other day about mm-hmm. uh, he had something which was like a, a roi model which was said you know, if you have X number of calls that come in and they cost you X number of pounds to serve because a call center agent costs X number of pounds, then if you save right. 30% of calls from using a chatbot, then you will save 30% of the cost and that. And it's like from everything that I've worked on in the past, and not even just in, in, in conversational AI, but also in enterprise kind of like digital service delivery and stuff like that, Right. it never reaches the level of demand or the the automation never reaches the level of demand which actually forces or gives the company the option to sack people. There has been there has no doubt been cases where that has been the case in Latin America. I think Vodafone laid off a bunch of people, and there's been cases that I know of where BPO contracts have been uh, downsized because now they don't need quite as much capacity overseas as they did, uh, and so there's definitely signs of that happening. And I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that as far as the impact of this technology on society and the economy. I'm wondering whether you can kind of, you know, share your views on that because I know you've got some some pretty kind of strong views on where this stuff is going as all of these companies start infusing AI everywhere. What does that do to things like jobs, things like the economy, things like that? Right. Well, we don't know. I don't think anyone can know. I don't think any economist can know, uh, let alone me because I'm not... <laughs> Not an economist, um, um, but uh, it's a hypothesis. This stuff is possible. Just the fact that it's possible um, gives me pause. Um, I believe it's possible that um, AI, conversational AI, can get good enough to you know replace jobs. I don't know that it's going to happen, but um, it could happen. And I also know that you know in a capitalist society that your whole point is to try to reduce your expenses um, if you can. Um, and that's non-negotiable. Every company that's in business in the U.S. is trying to reduce their expenses any way they can. Um, and I see that there's a way to do that. Now, whether other people are going to see there's a way to do that, whether these companies are going to see it and the light bulb's going to go off and they're going to execute it is another question. But you know, just the fact that it can be done means that it probably will eventually be done. Um, now, I agree with you that there's not a whole lot of evidence that that's happening. Um, but, I mean, you can look at anything that's a black swan event or some kind of innovation. You can look at the Wright brothers. You know, you could have had people saying there's no evidence that making wings is going <laughs> to work. We, we have a lot of evidence <laughs> that it results in you know, broken bones. And that goes back thousands of years. We've seen a lot of stupid wings. What are you guys doing? You nuts. Um, but, you know, if you if an engineer could actually look with, you know, very a lot of precision at what these Wright brothers were up to and say, well, wait a second here. There's a, there actually is a lot of inherent evidence in the way these wings and this tail is structured that it could actually create some lift. And I, you know what? I bet it will. Um, that happened. So, you know, you have to look at the technology and you have to look at 
what's possible and and try to make the most informed guesses possible without being restricted to this idea that oh it's never happened before and we you know we're not seeing it happen so it's not gonna happen um the the closer i look at this technology the more obvious it is to me that it's that it's going to happen um it's my yeah that's my philosophy yeah. behind and you know. i i think i agree to be honest because and, and it's not even as it's not really even as complex as the whole kind of airplane flying thing really because you know the the Wright brothers trying to get a plane to fly and there's already birds flying around so you know that things can fly but making something from scratch that can fly is quite a feat isn't it whereas we've already made stuff that can have a conversation quite successfully and so it already and, and exists can do it, it's just a case way. of humans can do it yeah. we already know that birds can fly we already know that humans can talk so we have these organic kind of models that things are possible. So now how do we emulate mm. them with technology? Um, yeah. You know, and, and for that analogy, you know, we don't have to have humans talking in a very complex way. We could just say, oh, we already know that I can put a person in this chair with a headset and they can answer these three questions pretty adequately. Um, that's where the bar is. Mm. You don't have to create AGI. You can just create a narrow AI that can do a few things that I can do when I have my headset on um, in a tech support role. Um, so mm. sorry to interrupt, but I think that analogy with the bird, we see a bird can do it, so maybe we can do it. I think that analogy applies. We see a, a human being as a, in a tech support role doing it, so why can't we make a bot do it? Yeah. Yeah, and bots already are doing it. Um, and, and, and so it's like, it, Some, what's interesting is that if you... Yeah. Some, yes, yes, some of them, yeah. Yes. But if, if you were, if you were to extrapolate that further out, though, you've got you've got conversations that can mm -hmm. be automated with bots, and getting increasingly more sophisticated as well. If you look at companies that started with a chatbot in twenty sixteen to twenty eighteen, mm -hmm. they often start with the low hanging fruit, the FAQ stuff like that. A lot of them now are moving into transactional stuff. You know, they're moving into automated services, automated transactions, which means that that, that it's taken away more demand. And if and my my philosophy has always been that basically a business, all a business is really is just a bunch of people, and all those bunch of people are doing fundamentally is either having conversations, or tapping and swiping on screens. When you break it down, we're having a conversation over the phone, we're emailing, we're texting, we're talking to each other internally within the organization, right. and then we're pushing buttons in systems to say that loan's been approved or that loan hasn't been approved. And so it's not even the front end of conversational AI that's the, that's the real, I suppose, if you wanted to look at it, risk, I suppose, is a word you could use. Because if you compare conversational AI with some of that automation, like hooking into APIs that automate services, like RPA systems that run along and you know kick off processes and run workflows and all that kind of stuff. Not only is it potentially affecting the conversations that are being had within businesses, but it's also affecting the tapping and swiping, which is the other half. And so if you extrapolate further on, it could potentially be that it's not only replacing or taking away call center jobs, but it could actually take away quite a lot of business administration jobs and and you know most of the business sure. <laughs> basically i think it was i was i think it was seth godin who said this on an interview that any task that you can actually write down the steps that it takes to finish that task 
can be automated. So one would be hard pressed to come up with a task that we do that can't really be broken down, atomized into discrete steps. Um, there might be a lot of them. There might be a lot of you know, complexity to certain things, but they still are divisible into steps. Um, so it's, it could creep up that ladder towards more complex operations, like you're saying. Um, and if doing so would reduce costs, then there would be tr incentive for companies to do that. Um, the only reason they wouldn't do it is if they didn't think it would work or they just were, didn't have the resources or the focus and they were, you know, lazy. I don't, I don't really like that word lazy, but <laughs> the reality is there is a lot of, um, laggards, late adopters, you know, mm -hmm. conservative thinkers, people who just don't like to change. A lot of people are still doing on-prem cloud, you know, why, mm. you know, why aren't they, you know, on AWS, why aren't they? So you, you got to wonder like, you know, whether it's going to happen or not, but it certainly could happen. Um, and if you do create new jobs, then, okay, let's take an example of a new job that, that springs forth from this, you know, AI revolution. What set of tasks are required for that job? And can those tasks be exploded and then automated one by one? And there's a limit to what humans can do, mm. right? So... At some point, AI catches up to that limit. You know, it's going to be rough. There, there will be a few jobs left, but will there be, will there be enough to, to for, for the four billion people who want jobs? I don't know. It's a, it's an open question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an interesting. Do you listen to the Joe Rogan podcast or not? Uh, once in a while, yeah. It's hard to avoid. You know, see yeah. some of the clips on YouTube. Yeah, it is a bit hard to avoid. Yeah. yeah. So, so one of the things that that I've saw on there before is in fact a couple of times i think is that um that conversation comes up a bit here and there around ai and all mm -hmm. this kind of stuff and one of the things that gets mentioned i can't remember if it's joe, joe rogan or, or the guests or whatever which is around that you know if if ai was to automate all kinds of stuff and the people who had jobs now don't have jobs and then you know fast forward then people have more time to do things that they would rather do, more time to, you know, I don't know, practice making clay pots or sewing or singing or playing the guitar, pot. whatever it might be. It's always the singing in the pot. <laughs> yeah, Talk about things like that. Yeah, it's never, I don't know. Turn back like, in. You know, cleaning up the streets or, or visiting elderly people or inventing something cool. It's always like poetry <laughs> play pots. <laughs> it's a little passive yeah, aggressive. Yeah, yeah. it's always playing music. Yeah. Well, look, when you had music and having aristocratic, fun. aristocratic societies, you know, if you look in history, what did they do when the next generation was born into wealth? They would learn, they would master the harp or the piano or the harpsichord, or they would learn uh, exotic languages. This is what they did when they had free time. And that was seen as what you do uh, when you've reached that level. And it was, there was no stigma against it. It was actually a sign of, of class and, and whatever. So, you know, but I do hear people saying like, well, what's the use of doing that stuff, you know, but it's, you know, if it's okay for, you know, a king's children to do that, then it should be okay for anyone to do that, I would imagine. And that's a little bit of a mm. weird statement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, if it's good enough for royalty, then it's good enough for us. <laughs> but, uh, but I suppose what then happens to the 
economy then as a result of that some people some people might not want to sit around making clay pots or or uh, you know learning the guitar or whatever it might be no. uh, some people might want to go and earn and we live in a capitalist society as you mentioned which is that everyone is kind of free if you choose to to pursue capitalistic gains so to speak so you know we're getting hypothetical here we're not necessarily talking about what's actually happening but like if we get into a stage in the next 10 20 30 40 50 years however long it takes where ai replaces more and more jobs not just in customer service but across the business Mm -hmm. uh what what's the impact on the economy because no one's spending any money because no one's earning any money so you know well so really when we talk about ai the bigger picture here is automation production production of, of resources, services and goods, um, automating it. So if we can automate production to the point where there is an abundance and it's actually more costly to employ humans to create this abundance, um, then the production will be created through automation, right? Um, because it's cheaper and more efficient. So then you've got you know, a lot of humans over here who still need to eat, still need shelter, right? So, but they're not being employed because it's cheaper and more efficient to automate. So what happens to those people? What do they do? And that's that's kind of like trying to keep people on the dime to answer that question is difficult because then you often hear, well, there'll be other jobs for them to do. Okay, but what if, you know, automation reduces that number of jobs? What do the remaining people do? And so forth. Um, you're, you're, asking, you're saying they're not going to buy anything because they're not earning anything, but they do need resources. They need to eat. So, I mean, what do you do if you don't have any food, but you have a kid you need to feed and you have no money to buy food? What do you do? Like, what would you do? Well, thing, thing, things get pretty primitive pretty quickly, don't they? They do. So, you know, and we don't know how this is all going to shake out, but I'm just saying hypothetically, if... It's cheaper to produce goods and services through automation. And if people actually do that, then there needs to be a discussion, a social and economic discussion, or there need there, or there will be a lot of pitchforks flying um, because people mm. need to eat. And because eating isn't so simple as, you know, hunting a deer or growing, gathering berries. That's not the world we live in. All the land is owned already. All the means of production already owned to someone's born in this world. Um, you know, your option is you work for an owner, you know, and you try to position yourself to become one. Um, so, you know, you can't just go out and necessarily take your bow and arrow and hit a deer and live that way. You're going to have to you know, buy things. So how do you know, it's, it's, these are tough questions. Um, I don't see it as a, as a reason to avoid pursuing automation as quickly as possible. Um, I, I think we should pursue automation as quickly as possible, but I think that we should be careful that that doesn't displace people or hurt them. Mm. Do you think there'll be a, a a notable tipping point, or do you think it will just be gradual? So, if you think about if you think about today, now you've got, you know, everyone's addicted to the phone, a hundred percent. And it's right. causing so many mental health problems, especially with younger people, right. you know, completely hooked on, you know, gratification, immediate gratification, the opinions of others, and this algorithm that just keeps feeding dopamine into the brain. But that's took 
like it's not even a long time. I was going to say a long time, but it's been like a decade, hasn't it, or, or a decade mm-hmm. and a half to get to that point. Right. And you know, the the impact of that still hasn't been felt. I don't think properly because there's kids being born today that will grow up with that constant dopamine addiction from the age of four you know and so like the impact probably hasn't been felt but so but do you think it'll be like a gradual thing like over the course of 100 years now everyone's driving a car and they weren't before or do you think it'll be like immediate like all of a sudden within a five to ten year time span everything just happens and you know everyone's out of a job and then there's carnage um that's a i mean probably a bit of both i mean there's different pockets of of you know, cultures here and there. Some will fall off a cliff. Some will see a gradual change. Um, I think you could say the same about mobile phones. You know, in some cultures, mobile phones might have had an explosion overnight. In others, it was gradual. Um, so hopefully it's gradual. Um, but, you know, I, you hear things about, you know, exponential change of technology and you hear about, you know, the self-driving cars hitting the, hitting the, hitting the highways next year and things like that. Um, you know, the endless pursuit for lowering your overhead is, is a real thing. And, you know, the number one job uh, in 40 states in, in the U.S., truck driving. Um, and I think the second one is call center workers. So as, as soon as these companies can, can do what they're doing with just a fraction of the overhead, um, they, it's, it's rational to assume that there's a chance that they will and that it will happen quickly. Mm. It may not, but mm. it could. Mm. You and can't they, stop it, can you? Humans, gone. If they don't do that, then then you have to say, well, why? You know, why would a trucking company um, spend ten x more on their expenses than their competitors do when they can use self driving trucks in say twenty twenty five? I can't think of an answer why they would do that um, that holds any water because that company wouldn't survive. Maybe. If if their competitors well, are doing I, it, unless it's like some well, kind of co-op well, or something, you know. Yeah, uh, there's different levels. So, so what tends to happen is that a market has obviously market leaders – and followers and stuff like that and the market tends to be made up of things that are not actually that different so if you look at coke pepsi you know dr pepper fanta i know coke owns most of these brands but look at just the drinks brands for example mm-hmm. they're all pretty much the same there's lots of different orange drinks lots of different coca-cola drinks and and so mm-hmm. the market gets full of very similar kind of things same as washing detergent and stuff like that and as much as the brands themselves want to say that they're differentiated or different in reality they're not really that much different it's just that whoever gets most known gets most of the market share basically but then mm-hmm. you do have companies now that are cropping up, which are, you know, for example, like um, eco-friendly clothing brands that use nothing but recycled, you know, materials and all this kind of stuff, that find a group of people that care about that and they build a small brand off the back of that. So in the trucking example, it may be that a company values people and social values more than it does profits and therefore it may well get 
custom from those who value that as well. Bit different to use that analogy for the for the trucking industry because fundamentally those trucks are delivering goods to somewhere that probably don't give a shit about that kind of stuff. It's more what the, it's more the brands that are on the truck that matter, you know. I mean, so if you're yeah, if I'm hiring a trucking company to deliver my inventory across the country, um, I'm not willing to pay that trucking company a lot more um, because they're they're holding on to human drivers uh, unless my customers mm-hmm. are willing to pay a lot more because I'm holding on to that trucking company, which is sort of a stretch for most of the account, most of the products out there. Um, there are niches where people will do that where you'll find and that's great. I mean, it would be wonderful if everybody was you know, voted with their dollar for things that were always fair trade and, you know, organic and sustainable. Um, but until we, until we make that a law, you know, it's going to be Adam Smith's invisible hand, you know, wh- wherever the profit is, that's usually where the majority will go. Mm. And so let's say that I mean, that is happening definitely as far as the, the conversational AI side of things is happening. Lots of businesses are doing it, whether they're starting small, whether they're, you know, been doing it for a long time, there is definitely automating conversations. And be that as it may, there is lots of considerations for uh, doing it ethically. For those that are mature, for those that have been doing it for a while, or for those that are switched on, there should right. be considerations for how ethical it is to do this. You know, there needs to be decisions made around... You know, if you're using a voice assistant, whether it's a male voice or a female voice, there needs to be considerations for the business about what it means to have an AI make decisions, right. potentially decisions mm-hmm. that are going to tell a customer no, that they can't have something uh, and it's just a computer doing it. So there's a big ethical kind of minefield. But there's also issues with the technology itself, which is that. You know, the, the the typical study that everyone is aware of, um, I don't know if it would be replicated today or not, but the typical study of ASR engines understand more accurately words spoken by white American men than they do black American females and things like that. So there's, there's inherent bias in some of this technology as well, which I know is also something you've been thinking about as well, this whole cognitive bias element of the technology. Um, well, I do think about that, but not enough. Um, it, it really is important. Um, we don't create the the bots, the agents themselves anymore. We just provide the software for other people to create the agents. So it is, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You're gonna get you're gonna get a lot of bias, and you're also gonna get a lot of bias with human agents too. Um, it's possible a live agent is gonna have an easier time understanding one demographic versus another dialect too. So, you know, that's that's a constant thing. I think the potential to avoid bias in AI is is higher than the potential to avoid it in your human employees in many ways. Um, but it, it isn't something that I know much about. I do think about cognitive bias in terms of how AI can detect cognitive bias or informal fallacies within rhetoric. That's a side interest because... A lot of, there are a lot of things within rhetoric that you can't re, you know something's up but you can't really point to it. You can't point that it happened. There's something called paralipsis where you say something without really saying it. You know, like, well, it would be a real shame if something were to happen to you. You know, that's like a threat, right? If you, you know, that's like <laughs> somebody's saying, well, it would be a shame if something happened to you. You know that they're threatening you, but you don't. But they have plausible deniability. Right. So how do you quantify that pragmatic language understanding, that tone, that implicit message behind the message? Um, 
you know, plausible deniability is a weaponized form of rhetoric. So we're not doing a very good job, you know, with our human brains proving it happened or, or you know, things like that. But, but deep learning and AI could possibly say, well, look, here are the markers, here are the, here's a way to flag pragmatic meaning and tone, you know, that beyond a reasonable doubt on what it means. And so I do think that AI can be used to mitigate bias that way. So when I mentioned I'm on the cognitive bias foundation, mm. uh, you know, that's what that's about. That's about flagging bias and fallacies within rhetoric. Um, it's a linguistic right. problem. And I think it's a really cool problem because if you ever get in a debate with someone, you know, in a forum or with your family over the, the dining room table, um, it gets really messy really fast because there's a lot of um, irrelevant comments, disorderly, disorganized comments, and it just becomes a big mess. And you see it between, you know, countries fighting. You see it between spouses fighting. Um, how do we pick that apart and see what's actually happening? You know, I think AI could be very helpful with that. Um, mm. And, so, and also potentially in a... Sorry, go on. I'm sorry. No, that's that's my where I where bias, cognitive bias and AI kind of overlap. That's where it does for me. I don't get too. I don't know much about the ethics for creating AI that isn't discriminatory or biased towards specific people in terms of like identity, politics, and so forth. Mm. It's, it's crucially important that we do the best we can on that. Um, but that's that's where my knowledge ends on that. Um, yeah 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 interesting yeah i see you're saying there so 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 in when you're saying cognitive bias in terms of detecting you know bias within rhetoric would you see the the potential application of that being something like in a court of law or something like that where would the where would the application of this be do you think so a court of law is actually a pretty good place to have a strong argument a, co a cogent argument because there's some order involved there's you know protocol there's a, there's a judge and you've got a jury and you've got a process you've got a bailiff you don't have that in classrooms and in you know kitchens and town halls you do have that in the court system because the court system is designed to, to create cogent arguments um, they're not perfect they're in, it's inductive logic but it's still a process and also with science hopefully we have that same thing um so i i don't know that the courtrooms would be the first place to put it i think they're doing a, they're doing an okay job um you know it, they could be but maybe that could increase the it could add more evidence um linguistic evidence pointing to hey this utterance typically means to a rational person this thing this there's some implicature here there's some implications so look beyond the words. The deep learning is telling us that this inflection usually means this. And then a jury has to decide if that's true or not. So that can be a tool in the, in the tool belt for a court system. But what I'm thinking is that what we really need is uh, when it comes to popular conversation, um, we're just awash in informal fallacies and in ad hominems and in distractions and deflections. Which It's just everywhere. And if there were tools that could kind of point to it just like grammarly you know not censor it but just flag it mm. Say, hey 82 percent chance that this was an ad hominem you might want to take a look at it and decide for yourself um, mm. now at least there's some clues that there's some we can actually kind of 
shed light on why our conversations are so messy. And when you think about it, messy conversations at scale could do us in as a species. Um, so that could be a cool mm. application for AI. Eighty-two uh, percent chance to add ad hominem what? <laughs> ad hominem. <laughs> yeah, that's a Harry Potter spell. You haven't heard of it? No, it's it's there. I, sh- I should have done. I'm a big Harry Potter fan. The fallacy, logical fallacies often have these highfalutin Latin names, which I love to use in conversation right. to demoralize my opponents. Um, no, ad hominem. <laughs> <laughs> ad hominem is just like, listen, I'm I'm no longer attacking your argument or the case you're making. I'm now attacking you. So like if my uh, grandmother said, smoking is bad for your health, and then I say, but you're smoking, so who are you to say that? Therefore, smoking is not bad for your health. So what I did there was I attacked my grandmother instead of her argument. Let's say she's pointing to some research mm-hmm. that cigarettes are bad for you, and I'm saying, but you smoke. That's called a, a two quo I think to to use the Latin, that's and these things are rampant. So anytime you talk about any subject, you're going to get um, distraction techniques. Like, you know, well, if everybody thinks so, it must be true. That's called ad populum. And so I don't know why I know these things. Probably just from a lifetime of arguing with people and getting frustrated. It's, <laughs> it's hard to kind of explain what they just did, what kind of nonsense they just pulled, if you don't have a word for it. Um, because you get tired yeah. explaining the word in a paragraph. You say, you just did a two quote you. You just did a post hoc ergo propter hoc. You just did a, a <laughs> ad populum fallacy. So philosophers develop this so that they can get something done. They can actually have a conversation without it getting derailed. Um, right. We need to bring that, that into the public square a little bit more so that we can be a little more clear with what we're saying and, and, and find some common ground. I think AI can help with that. I like it. I like it. I, I, I definitely need to brush up on my Latin uh, and philosophy. Um, that's really good. Don't, don't, and, and don't use those words. That, <laughs> don't use those words in friendly conversation because they sound pompous. But um, <laughs> let's let the robots do that, then we don't have to get blamed. You know. Yeah, that's true. That's fair enough. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, cool. That's really good. Uh, so. Final final question. Um, the LinkedIn newsletter that we did this week was introducing a new guy called Bullshit Man, which you obviously read because you were talking about one of the articles in there, which was moaning about how people say two in these headlines. X company right. two revolutionized speech recognition technology, which just means that they've signed a deal, they're going to do some work, but nothing's been done yet. There's been no results. So what I'm going to do from now on is uh, in these newsletters is have a little section for Bullshit Man which is going to draw out some of the bullshit that's around in the industry because I think there's a lot of it. There's a lot of uh, overhype. There's a lot of, uh, you know, snake oil sales kind of stuff going on. And there's just a lot of rubbish that I think clouds the market, doesn't make it helpful for people. For people that need this technology, that want to use it and get something done, makes it far more difficult. And the market, I think it's probably just because it's saturated and everyone's trying to vie for attention. But what ends up happening is that everything gets clouded and muddled and it's just full of shit. And so my last question for you, Rob, is 
What is some of the bullshit that you have been identifying lately? Is there any pet peeve within this industry where people are just either getting the complete wrong end of the stick on things or they're, they're uh, stating assumptions as if they're fact or any kind of general bullshit that you've observed going on that you that you think will be useful to call out? Not to name any names, but just general themes. Gosh, I don't like to do... I mean, I, I'm actually... My history is in marketing, so anyone who's trying to make a living and, and sell a product is they're you're gonna you're gonna eventually step in some bullshit because you're gonna <laughs> make some, some you're gonna make superlative claims about what you're offering and that's just the way it is i do it everybody does it um but at the same time i think nobody really know you know there's a lot of different markets out there they need different things all the solutions that are coming out you know they're making claims that might be true or that could be true or that should be true and I just, yeah, I think there's enough room for everybody to to experiment and to try to pitch their vision of what what could happen with these products. Um, so I, I can't really think of anyone who I would call bullshit on um, in the industry. I think it's a young industry. People are trying their hardest to make something work and to make, you know, I want to mention, because you got me talking about, you know, things that were political, economical and, and futuristic and, and then linguistics. We took, I want to mention that like, you know, my partner, the co-founders, Dustin Dye and Alex Seegers and myself, um, we really believe that these products and our product will make things better for not just businesses, but for people. Um, you've got people, you know, approaching the public sector who are, you know, waiting in lines and, and get stuck in red tape. You've got people, enterprise, you know, people who are trying to find out how to do their job better and they need to call the help desk you know, centralized help desk to see how they, you know, what the company's protocol is. Um, there's a lot of hassles out there. So we're really trying to make things better. Are we going to do it? Are we going to succeed? You know, who knows? Um, are we going to paint a picture of this sort of like amazing best case scenario? Absolutely we are. I don't think that's bullshit. I think that's just needed. I think we've got to say, hey, Here's what could happen. Let's go for it. Let's do it. Let's believe it. Let's have faith. Um, there's a lot of faith in the AI industry, in the chatbot industry. There always has been. Um, and, and sometimes it's it's blind faith. Sometimes it's naive faith. But I'm all for it. I think that um, you, you don't want to lie, but you do want to paint glorious visions of what could really happen with your technology. So I'd rather focus on that part. Like, it's not bullshit. It's more like, zealous, you know, zealousness, zeal is, is what I'm seeing. Um, and we like, we like that. We like, you know, we want people to dream big. So. Yeah. Good. Absolutely. And, and bullshit man is purely a market employee on my side as well. So I'm just as bad as everybody else, to be honest. But definitely, I think it's a different... Love bullshit man I, I think the, the graphic was hilarious and the writing was fantastic so keep doing that um i'm not going to call bullshit on anyone for a lot of reasons uh, i just gave you one there are others if i call bullshit on people i might make enemies and i don't want to do that <laughs> but i definitely want you to do it okay so keep, keep doing it and, and keep spitting the truth I'm not calling bullshit on any individuals. I'm calling bullshit on concepts, philosophies, and assumptions that many hold that I think are not grounded in anything. And right. so that's where I'm trying to get to, as I'm trying to get to the truth of what works in this industry, 
what doesn't work in this industry, what's being overly hyped and overly sold based on either false assumptions or uh, maybe accurate assumptions, but still assumptions that's unproven, and just trying to solidify what the what the truth is and what the reality is versus what's pretend and what's not. And so that's kind of the uh, the philosophy. It's yeah. it's helpful and it's needed. I appreciate that you're doing it. Um, when you wrote that had those examples of blog headlines, um, I've written headlines like that. So my immediate impulse is he's talking about me a little bit, you know. Mm. Uh, so mm. you, you, even though you're not naming people by name, you um, you know you're challenging people to question what they're doing and and do it better, which is really needed. So mm. Um, mm. my next headline won't be. Cool. You know, we hope it'll do this or we think it's going to do this. It'll be, it's doing it, you know, or if not, yeah. I'll be more yeah. clear about the fact that this, this is a hypothesis. We really believe it could happen. Well, yeah. You know, oh. why you should try it, you know. Oh, we, oh, we aim to. There's nothing wrong with having an aim and a goal. We aim to do this. It's just when someone says that it's going to happen, it's almost like a foregone conclusion. This technology is going to deliver these results for this company in this time period. It's like, well, there's a lot more to it than that, you know. It should, and hopefully it does. Uh, but it's almost like reporting on the event before the event has happened, which is, yeah, I don't know. I right. So you it. take that headline and you run it through the cognitive bias detector, and it says, "You're bullshitting me because <laughs> you don't really know that's going to happen." <laughs> right. So that's kind of what you're doing. Until we build that machine, we need bullshit, man. So yeah, yeah, that's it. Keep doing it. Classic, classic. Well, Rob, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I will stick all of the links to Bot Copy uh, into the show notes, so everybody can go either to the website or into the show notes in your podcast player to do that uh, and and visit it out and check it out. I definitely think it is a it's a fantastic product. Definitely a, a niche that is well needed. I've had uh, requests from people who have been asking for something similar in the past. Uh, and now I know that it's bot copy that they need. So there we go. Appreciate Fantastic. your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Cool.